And, um, and we're really kind of looking at this. And one of the things that I shared is, you know, how would you feel if you found out that there was a network of people living in your community that had banded to, together to make your life miserable? That they had joined together with their number one sole purpose and desire was to ruin your life, to affect the way that you think, to affect the things that you do, to affect your finances, to affect your health, to affect every aspect of your life. How would you feel if you found out that these people were responsible for the darkest moments of your life? All right? That they were responsible for influencing you to turn away from people that could have been of great value to you. Or, how, or maybe they were responsible for influencing you for becoming friends of people that affected you in a negative way. Well, there is such a group of people, and not necessarily people, I guess, but the Bible says, Paul says in Ephesians, that there's this, these spiritual forces in heavenly places, and they have banded together because they are your adversary. And Paul describes what we're in as a very high-stakes spiritual war. And so last week, we talked about the first piece of the armor of God being the, the girdle of truth. That it's the piece that holds everything together. And how, how uh, the truth is important because it helps guard our minds. And, 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 and that we understand that it comes from the Bible. And our ability to understand the Bible, that the Bible becomes the truth. And, and, and when we don't know the truth, when we don't know the word of God, then we don't know when we're being lied to by this adversary who can come and plant thoughts into our minds to think about things or to think different ways about things than we should be thinking. All right? And how important it is. Anyways, I'm not going to preach that whole sermon today. So we have it on podcast on our website if you want to get a hold of that. But today I want to talk to you about, it's the second position of the arm. It's called the breastplate of righteousness. And, and the title of my sermon is, is um, Position is Everything. Position is everything. And I want to show you a couple of pictures here this morning about how position is everything. So if we could get our first picture up here today. Okay, like seriously, you don't have to kill the baby. We'll buy the game. Okay, you know what I'm saying? I mean, come on. You know, that's kind of weird right there. Uh, you know, the gun right. Strange. MSN, I don't know what you're doing. All right, go ahead. Next. That's an interesting hairdo that he's got right there. I don't know if you guys can see that nice coloring that he has. Uh, it's very interesting. All right, next next piece. Uh, you know, position is everything, right? I mean, because there's the devil right there. I don't know. The, uh, all right, next. And that's about right, I think. Right? Diabetes from McDonald's. <laughs> right? Position, position is everything, all right? I, you know, I coach sports, and one of the things about sports is that in sports, position is everything. Um, you know, when you, when you have little kids and they play soccer, uh, when they're playing like little soccer, there are no positions when they first start playing soccer, you know what I'm saying? The only position is where the ball is, and you just have a bunch of kids running around kicking the ball. As they grow up, you know, and, and, and they have coaches that can teach them how to play the game. They teach them, no, you got to stay back or you got to stay forward. Or, you got to stay over here to the left. You got to stay over here to the right. Uh, you know, position makes a big difference, you know, because you'll have one guy coming down one side of the field and he'll hit this wonderful cross and the ball will cross right in front of the goal. 
And if somebody's not in position right there, that ball will just keep on going and go out of bounds. But if somebody's in that position, they'll be able to put a head or, or a knee or a foot on that ball, and they'll be able to score because they're in the right position. I know position is everything. Uh, my kids play a little AAU basketball right now, and, and so they're coming to the end of their season. But my, my youngest son is on a team that's just not very good, and, and you know, they, they do the best they can. But it's, it's, it's very interesting. It's first frustrating as a basketball coach myself that I'm sitting here watching them, and, and they'll, they'll, they'll have, they have guys on their teams that are, if you know anything about it, they're supposed to play in the post. In other words, they don't have a good enough shot to be outside. They're not a guard. They're a post player. They need to be closer to the basket because that's the greatest opportunity that they have for success. But not, no, no, not, not some of these kids. No, 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 no. They go catch the ball at the three-point line, and they go chug it up. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we're talking about we're not even hitting the backboard on these shots. I'm like, dude, don't you know your position? You're not supposed to be shooting the ball from right here. Now, you know, if it was my team, I'd be like, you shoot another ball from the three-point line. You're going to sit down. You get up underneath that goal, you know, and you catch the ball down there. You know, that's, that we don't need nothing like that. I mean, hey, I know you made one out of 100. But, you know, I had, I had a kid on my team that last year at Kingwood. He was a sixth grader, and he was a, he's going to be a good basketball player. He's a little uncoordinated and stuff like that. Uh, so he didn't play much unless we were, like, losing or if we were winning. But there was a moment, and he's supposed to be a true, I mean, he's going to be a true center type player. He's just a big kid. He's tall for his, for his grade. And uh, I put him in the game, and, uh, and the offense that we ran wasn't real good for him because we didn't, we didn't have any, he was the only center that we had on the team. So, and he wasn't really good enough to start, so we played mainly, you know, guards and, and, and forwards, and, and so we just kind of spread him out, did a little five wide type thing. And uh, so when he got in the game, the offense wasn't great for him. But I promise you, some of the kids on my team feel like that he, he should have gotten MVP. And the reason is, is because one of the times, one of the only times in the game, he caught the ball from the three-point line, and he literally shot the ball sideways. Like this right here. And if you know anything about shooting, the goal's over here, not the, this way. All right? I don't even think he jumped. And he drained it. He drained it. It was, a, it was, it was like the most unbelievable thing I've ever seen. Uh, and, uh, and now he, he shot 100% from the three-point range, you know, because he shot one three-pointer. Then, you know, if it really mattered, I would have been upset <laughs> that he shot. But anyways, position is everything. Uh, and so, let's listen, let's read again in Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. It says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be, be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, the schemes of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, and against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take, uh, uh, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, stand therefore having your loins girded with truth, and having uh, put on the breastplate of righteousness. All right, the breastplate of righteousness, the second armor of God, the second armor that's mentioned here by Paul. The breastplate was the most beautiful and striking element of the Roman armor. 
It was the, it was the most amazing part of all of their armor that they had. The breastplate was it, it, right there. I mean, you know what I'm saying, right? I'll wear that up underneath my shirt just so I can, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And just in case somebody wants to, you know, my kids, I promise you, I might, my, if my kids make it out of my house in the next couple of years, it's going to be my boys in particular. They want to punch me all the time now. It's like, stop, I'm driving down the road, and they're just wailing on my arm. And I'm like, stop. You know, of course, then they want me to go. And all it takes is one little move, and they're on the ground begging for mercy. But it just, you know, I need, I need something like that with a little bit of shoulder covering. You know what I'm saying? A little like right here. You know, let them hit on that one time. Yeah, see, what, see if that teaches a lesson. But, hey, th- this was it, was, it was the most, you know, beautiful, striking part of all of the armor of God. All right. It was the largest part of the armor outside maybe the shield. All right. It covered the vital organs. And it was also extremely eye-catching. It was made out of brass. And it would shine bright when the sun was out. And oftentimes it would blind the eyes of the people that they were in battle with. That it would shine so well that the sun would be hitting it. And as they're in battle, this reflection would actually hit their enemy and actually cause them to be blinded, momentarily blinded because of this particular piece of armor. It covered both the chest and the back because it had straps that went over the back and covered the back. And it, they believe it weighed in excess of 40 pounds. Just the breastplate alone weighed in excess of 40 pounds. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to rethink wearing something like that. All right. Now, to, to give you a little bit of perspective, um, uh, theologians believe that Goliath's breastplate weighed of a, 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 in excess of 125 pounds. <laughs> Can you imagine wearing something like that? You know, crazy. But it's very fitting here that the piece of armor is associated with righteousness. Okay? It's very fitting that this breastplate is associated with righteousness because righteousness is a guard to the human heart and spirit. Righteousness, okay, God has has designed righteousness to be a guard to our human heart and our human spirit. And it is associated with the deepest part of your being. You see, God himself is righteous, okay, and he is the highest authority And God sets the bar for what righteousness is, not because he is all-powerful and he can kind of do anything that he wants to do, but because God is righteousness. In other words, he doesn't just set this high standard of morality for us as people and then say, well, hey, good luck, I hope you can make it. No, he sets this high standard because he is righteousness, because he is that example, because he is that highest level of righteousness that there is. He's, he's up there. He doesn't just demand it from us. He lives it. And Christ came because there was no man that could stand in the gap between God and man. Because man had sinned and, and fallen short of the glory of God and we would all have, have, have our marks and all of our issues. Well, we could not, there was nothing to bridge the gap between where we were in our fallen state and where God is in his righteous state. And so Jesus 
came because of that. He came to bridge that gap. In Isaiah chapter 59, verse 17, it says, for Isaiah was prophesying about Jesus. He said, for he put on righteousness as a breastplate. Even we see here that Jesus was the first person to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Christ lived a righteous and flawless life. And he always, one of the reasons why he did this is because he always had it in his mind what his father thought or how it would relate to the father. And everything that he did and in everything that he spoke, when he did it, he did it always thinking about the father. That I and the father are one. I only do what I see my father do. I only say what I hear my father saying. That in every moment he did stuff, he lived in such a way, and how it would reflect and how it would relate and how it would please the Father. This is the way Jesus even himself lived. You see, righteousness is a relative position. The thing about righteousness is that it always has to do with how you relate to another individual. You see, Abraham, Abraham, Abraham was told by God, if you go back in Genesis, God told Abraham and said this. He said, walk before me and be blameless. God told Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. Now, was Abraham perfect? Was Abraham blameless? Did he do everything right in his life? Did he make all the right decisions and stuff like that? Even though God had told him, walk before me and be blameless? Well, of course he did it. We know that Abraham was not perfect, okay? Because his blamelessness had to do with walking before him, okay? Not necessarily being perfect. His blamelessness had to do with his position of being with the Father, that he walked before the Father. That's where his blamelessness came from. Because the Bible tells us very clearly that Abraham was righteous. But we also know that Abraham was not perfect. We know that he lied, he cheated, he manipulated, you know, he was unfaithful. We saw all of these things from Abraham, yet the Bible calls him righteous. And we see that God told him to walk before him and be blameless. So he was supposed to live his life in a way of constant view of where the Father is. It is being aware of your current position with God. Your current position with God. One of the things that's interesting about over the, over the course of years in my life, it's always, uh, uh, it's just one of those things, I, I, I used to do this a whole lot more than I do it now. Uh, and a lot of it's just, you know, just I'm 38 and I'm not in my 20s anymore, that kind of stuff. But I used to love to go out and play basketball just with random people. I just, and I would use it as an opportunity to evangelize people and witness to people. And I would go out to a court somewhere and I just, I just, you know, love to just jump into a game and start playing, you know, and, um, you know, I was always, you know, the small little white boy that everybody thought that they could school and stuff like that too. So, 
But we get out there, and, and, and these guys, you know, they're just, you know, they're, they're just lost. They're, you know, lost people are going to be lost. You know, sinners are going to be sinners. They're just going to sin. And I didn't expect people to act appropriately around me just because I was a Christian or just because whatever. For me to expect them to live holy would be unreasonable because they haven't been transformed by the power of God. But it was always interesting because they would do what they would do, and then once they would find out that I was like a pastor, then they're like, oh, man, I'm so sorry, dude. I, you know, I didn't mean to offend you like by what I said. And then next thing you know, you're still playing, and they're like catching themselves. Like, like God, sorry, man, sorry. And I'm like, man, I just, I just smile. I just shake my head. I'm like, hey, hey, you know, because I'm like, you know, like, hey, there's somebody else that you need to worry about, and it's not me. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I understand, I guess, where you're coming from right now. But, you know, it's, it's clearly obvious that you have no connection to your place and standing with the Father because you're more concerned about me, okay, than you are about the Father. Okay? That they are more concerned about how they're going to upset me or, or they're going to, you know, bother me or upset me or something like that. And most of the time I would just shake off and be like, hey, man, you know, whatever. You know, I, that's, that's just the way I was. But I would always try to witness to them and, and, and show by example, you don't got to live that way. And then always try to invite them or talk to them about the Lord. It was just an incredible time. And this happened all the time. People, once they find out what you did, the fact that I was a pastor, all of a sudden they want to straighten up, you know. But the Father is with them everywhere they go. But they aren't, they're not straightening up for the Father. They're not straightening up for the presence of God. They're going to straighten up for a pastor who's in their presence because they're living their life without an awareness of where the Father is. They're living their life without an awareness of God. So people live in such a way that they have no awareness of the presence of God around them. And we can do the same thing. But what was God's command to Abraham? Walk before me. Be aware of my presence around you. Walk before me. Be here in my presence. What does sin do to us in our life? It causes us to not walk with God. Right? It causes us to run away from his presence. That's what Adam and Eve did, right? When they sinned, they were no longer walking with God because they went and hid themselves because they heard God coming. Peter did it. Ben Peter denied Jesus three times. We see that the Bible says that Peter followed at a distance. He followed at a distance. That's what sin does when God says that we are to walk before me. See, here's what we're saying. When we live in righteousness, when we live in righteousness, here's the three things that we are saying. Number one, God, you created me. You own me. You own everything about me. You created me. I am here because of you, and you are the author of everything in my life. Number two, you have every right to judge me. God, you have every right 
to judge me. This is the decision that we make when we give our lives to Christ. When we surrender to Christ, we come to him and say, God, I have sinned. I am a sinner. You have every right to look into my life, to judge my life and who I am and what I've done. You have every right. You have the ability. You have the right to judge me. And number three, when I fall short, you will make up the difference with your mercy. Okay? Number one, you created me. Number two, you have the right to judge me. And number three, when I fall short, you will make up the difference with your mercy. That's what it means to live in righteousness. To subject yourself to God in that way. So the Bible says that Abraham was a righteous man. We also know he wasn't perfect. We lied and manipulated. His righteousness was not based on his goodness, but on his position with God. Your righteousness is not based upon how good you are. Because none of you in here are really that good, and I'm including myself. We're not really that good. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that on our best day, on our best day, our righteousness, our best day is like filthy rags compared to God. You'll never be good enough. You'll never be good enough. And Abraham wasn't good enough. And the reason why he was righteous was not because of his goodness. But righteousness is the quality of being right or just. And that is a gift from God. God gives it to you. And Romans chapter 5, 17 tells us that righteousness is a gift. That it is something that you cannot earn. God's righteousness is something that he gives to you. And here's the problem, though. In every human experience, we are accepted because of behaving well, because we have really good qualities, because we're drop-dead good-looking like myself, okay? I know, it's only, you know there's only a few of us that really know that struggle. Okay, I understand that. In every human experience that we have, we receive favor because of something that we do or something that we have. I have been good enough, so I receive a promotion. I, I, I have favor in friends because I'm athletic or because, you know, of this or that. We, there's all kinds of, in every human experience in our life, we receive favor, we receive blessing, we receive promotion based upon certain things that we do or things that we have. <clears throat> but you see, this is the problem, is that we will take this human thing that we're so used to and we try to adapt it into the spirit in our relationship with God. And see, with God, it doesn't work like that. With God... It doesn't work like that. And it's not that God doesn't care about what you do because he does. The Bible tells us that nobody has ever been justified by keeping the law. Nobody has ever been justified by keeping the law. And somewhere along the way, it's easy for us to think that if we do this or if we do that, we will be accepted by God. If I'm just good enough, if I just give my tithes, if I just 
if I just go to church three times a month, if I, if I, if I serve and, and be a greeter or a worship leader or um, help out with kids, if I just do this and if I just do that, then it, it will just, I will be accepted by God. Somewhere along the way, it, it became easy for us to think that that's how we gain acceptance by God. Why? Because every other human experience in our life, that's the way it is. And this creates inside of us self-righteous people who don't care about other people who are different than themselves. It's how you can go to church and you can look at somebody who walks in with piercings all over their body and tattoos and think, eh, why are they in here? Why not? This is the best hospital that there is. This is the best place for a lost person to go, is in church. Is to be in the sanctuary of the Lord, to be around people who are supposed to be understanding, compassionate, and loving. But what happens is, is when we place what we do and what we have and who we are as being the reason why we are accepted before God, then all of a sudden we can start thinking ourselves better than other people based upon what we do, what we have, and what we are. But you're not accepted by God because of any of that. So we have to understand that righteousness is not given because of our behavior. It's not given to us by, uh, because of our behavior. However, okay, we know this, that one sin, one accounted sin in our life is one too many. One accounted sin for our life is one too many. Because we know this, that God is righteous, he is holy, he is just, and he is love, and all of those things work together in harmony, all of those things. And so because God is holy, he cannot accept anyone even with only one sin. Because he is holy, he cannot accept and embrace sin, okay, in his presence. And if he did, then he would, he would cease to be God. If he accepts your sin, but not the sins of others, or even the angels, or the sin of Lucifer, then he would no longer be fair and just. And if he's no longer fair and just, then, then he's no longer God either. He can't accept your sin, much less the sin of anybody else. But here's the thing, God is also love, and God deeply loves you. And God deeply loves every person outside these walls. So what does he do about this problem? Well, he already knew what he was going to do before the problem even existed. And that he, was, he would send his son, Jesus, to bridge the gap. You see, when we put our faith and trust in the Son of God, God looks at us and says, all that I require of you has been fulfilled through Christ. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus, God then looks at us and says, all that I require of you has been fulfilled because of Jesus. This flies in the face 
of how we gain acceptance in every other aspect of our lives. It does. When I put my faith in him, he puts my sin behind him. When I put my faith in him, he takes my sin and my mistakes and my failures and all the things that I've done and he puts them behind him. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing what God has done for you? That your sins are no more. They are gone. And now, now we can be completely free from condemnation. Now you can be completely free from condemnation. You see, here's a couple things that you need to know. Number one, there will be many good people that end up in hell. There will be a lot of good people that will be in hell. Because there are a lot of people, even, religion, even religions and religious people, that rest upon their goodness to earn favor with God. But God had to sacrifice his son for this thing called sin, and all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because he had to sacrifice his son in such a way, sin is not a small matter to God. No matter how many. And the second thing is, there will be many a forgiven sinner in heaven. There will be a lot of good people that end up in hell. And there will be many, many, many forgiven sinners in heaven. Jesus tells a story about this. I don't know if you remember the story. He says that the righteous, that the Pharisee began to pray to God. And he said, God, I have paid my tithes. I have fasted twice a week. I have done good. At least I'm not like that sinner over there. And he said, the sinner bowed his knees before God and said, God, I am a sinner. I am a sinner. Have mercy on me. And Jesus said, which one do you think will be accepted by the Father? The righteous man who talks about how righteous he is and how good he is and all the good things that he does. Or the sinner who confesses his sin and says, forgive me. Jesus said, it's the sinner. The sinner will be in heaven, and the Pharisee will not. You see, people can live their life in such a way and do all kinds of horrible, terrible things on this earth, and then somewhere along the way recognize that th what they need is Jesus, and they repent. And they receive acceptance from God because of their repentance. Now, none of this is to say that what you do is not important. Because it is. We don't do what we do to gain favor with God. But we do what we do because we have favor with God. That our motivation for doing good, our motivation for living right, our motivation for doing the right thing should be because we love God, not because we want God's love. <clears throat> it should be because we want to please him, not because we want to gain his acceptance. 
So what is our motivation behind the things that we do? Why do we go to church? Why do we worship? Why do we give? Why do we serve? Do we do these things because they're religious responsibilities and things that we feel that we are obligated to do? Or do we do it because we love God and we want to be in his presence and we want to walk before him? Why do we do the things that we do? We think that we're going to gain acceptance, gain favor, and somehow, you know, our good deeds will outweigh our bad on the day we stand before God. Because none of that matters to God. Does it work that way? Righteousness is a gift. It's something that God gives, it, gives to you. And when God gives you righteousness because of what Jesus did for you, standing in the gap, God gives you righteousness. Righteousness is no good to you unless you put it on. Just like Paul says, you got to put on the breastplate of righteousness. We have to put on a mindset that we are constantly aware that we are righteous before God. Rob, if you'll come. We have to constantly put it on. When we have an understanding of our position, then we can be more accountable with our actions. When we walk with an awareness of the Father, when we walk before him, and we walk with him, and we have a relationship with him, we could be more accountable to our actions because of our connection to the Father. We could know him. We also know that there are many spiritual influences around you that are constantly working and trying to make you feel like you're not worthy. You ever feel like you're not worthy? You ever feel like you know you better than anybody else? You do. There are things that you know about yourself that nobody knows about but God. And sometimes we carry these struggles and these things that nobody knows about into our relationship with God and into our life and and into our walk. And those things rest in the back of our minds. And what the enemy does is he comes in and he wants to highlight those things and say, hey, you're not worthy. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are raising your hands in worship? Don't you know, don't you know you got angry this past week? Don't you know that you blew your witness to your coworker? Who in the world are you to worship God right now? Who are you? So <clears throat> this right here affects our confidence in Christ. What happens is, is we know that we have a bad attitude about our sin. Here, here's one of the things that's really tempting for us to do. <clears throat> when we sin, we punish ourselves, right? It's like we have to pay penance for our wrongdoings. Uh, man, I blew it this week. I'm just not going to go to church, man. I just, God don't want me in his presence. I just... I just, man, I, you know, I don't, I can't pray right now. God knows, I just, this is what we do. We, 
we, we then take, like, we take a break from God like we're, we're suffering ourselves, like we're putting ourselves in time out. We're, 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 we have to pay our dues. This is what we do. I, I look, and I, I'm tempted just, just the same. You, that, that sin comes in, it affects your confidence, it affects your, your, your spirit, and then you're like, I just, God don't want to hear from me right now. It affects your confidence. Confidence is something that is a part of your heart. When we lack confidence, it affects every area of our life. Every area of our life. You know, you you may have some mess-ups in your life. More than likely you do. More than likely all of us in here at some level, at some point, we all have mess-ups in our life. But you want to know something? Even in the midst of your mess-ups, God has made you righteous. Because it's not about your, your goodness. Abraham's righteousness wasn't about his goodness. And your righteousness is not about your goodness. So what do we do with our sin? It's not like God's going to overlook it. It's not like God doesn't care because we know that he does. Well, First John tells us what to do with our sin. It says that if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Come on. Come on, you have a faithful God. Why would Jesus tell us to forgive somebody 70 times 7 if he himself is not willing to forgive you 70 times 7? He said, well, you don't know, man, I'd like, I can do this all the time, man. This is just, I just, I can't help. I get mad or I have a bad attitude or I think bad. I do the, if you, conf- if, if you confess your sin, he is faithful and he is just and he will forgive you and he will cleanse you. And you don't have to run away and hide like Adam and Eve. You don't have to follow from a distance for a while like Peter. Just go to him. Just go to him. Confess your sin. He will cleanse that unrighteousness. And he will clothe you with his righteousness. And you will have that breastplate. And it will create confidence inside of you, boldness inside of you. And it will protect your spirit. It will protect your heart from living in condemnation and living in weakness. Will you stand to your feet today?